0: Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone, everywhere. This is Lesson 12 of Texas History Lessons, and for this lesson we're going to visit the Caddo of East Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Now first of all, let's get one thing out of the way right up front. Most people are aware that Texas received its name from a Caddo word and some know that they built mounds for some reason or other. As W.W. W. Newcomb Jr. wrote in his classic book on the Texas Indians, to many Texans their greatest significance lies in the fact that the state name was derived from the Hasinae Confederation of Caddo's. The tribes of this confederation call each other Teishas, meaning allies or friends and the Spaniards, to whom it was also applied, soon came to employ the word for these and other friendly natives. Probably the pronunciation was closer to Tejas, or Techos than to Texas. But how did Tejas, Tejas, or Tejas, T-E-J-A-S, the Spanish spelling, become Texas? I think historian Donald Chipman, in his book on Spanish Texas, first published in 1990, explains it best when he discusses this. And he, I'm going to quote him. He wrote, when Spaniards first contacted the Caddoes in 1689, they may have been greeted by members of the nation with the word Techos, meaning friend, in Caddoan speech. In any event, Techos entered Spanish records as Tejas. tejas. Those familiar with the Spanish language are aware that J and X have identical sounds in words. And the change in spelling of Tejas, T-E-J-A-S, to Texas, T-E-X-A-S, was an easy transition. No Texas Indian group called themselves Tejas, but the name is often mistakenly used by Europeans interchangeably with the Hassanai Confederacy. Okay, we got that out of the way. Who were the Hassanai? Who were the Caddo? And what was going on with all these mounds they built? We're about to find out all about it, so let's go back to the beginning. The following is one story that's been passed down about the origins of the people we now call Caddo, the first Texas people to have successful and large-scale sustainability through farming. They came from under the ground through the mouth of a cave in a hill which they call Chakani Na, the place of crying, on a lake close to the south bank of Red River, just at its junction with the Mississippi. In those days, men and animals were all brothers and all lived together under the ground. But at last, they discovered the entrance to the cave leading up to the surface of the earth. And so they decided to ascend and come out. First, an old man climbed out, carrying in one hand fire and a pipe and in the other, a drum. After him came his wife with corn and pumpkin seeds. Then followed the rest of the people and all the animals. All intended to come out, but as soon as the wolf had climbed up, he closed the hole and shut up the rest of the people and animals under the ground, where they still remain. Those who had come out sat down and cried a long time for their friends below, hence the name of the place. Because the cattle came out of the ground, they call it Ena, Mother, and go back to it when they die. Because they have had a pipe and drum and corn and pumpkins since they have been a people, They hold fast to these things and have never thrown them away. From this place, they spread out towards the west, following up the course of the Red River, along which they made their principal settlements. For a long time, they lived on Caddo Lake, on the boundary between Louisiana and Texas, their principal village on the lake being called Sha-Chi-Dini, Timber Hill. So this is one story that's been passed down by the tribe in Texas, that achieved the highest cultural level development in the borders of the state by any of the indigenous peoples. Except, I'd say, the Humanos were also relatively significant in their achievements, as we've seen in previous episodes. They reached this higher level of success with advanced techniques and tools that made them highly successful farmers. Their relatives, the Wichita, who arrived later in Texas, are the only other Texas tribe to reach such a level of sophistication. The ability to grow an abundant food supply made it possible for the cattle to achieve a relatively dense population and complex social institutions than the hunter-gathering Coatecans or the plains culture Apaches could. As W. W. Newcomb also wrote, the intricate cultural structure that grew from this ample subsistence base is as fascinating and is in many ways as exotic as any known in the Americas. The name that we use now since the 19th century for all of the different tribes, Caddo, originated from the French abbreviation for Caddo Ha Dacho, meaning real chief in their dialect. Their change from a hunting and gathering lifestyle began with the direct influences of the introduction of agriculture from Mesoamerica around 500 B.C., In large part, they can relate their success to their relationship to the other great Mississippian civilizations that had flourished a few hundred years before the arrival of the Spanish. The Mississippian culture emerged over the next few hundred years to dominate eastern North America and they became its westernmost example. They owe much of their successful farming, village life, and religion to the influence of that civilization. At the same time, we cannot dismiss the cultural traits they gained from peoples to the west as far as New Mexico. And the peoples of the South in Mexico, the Mississippian civilization had been in a decline by the arrival of the Spaniards, but the Caddo endured. The Caddo people of Texas are part of a linguistic family that also includes the tribe we just mentioned, the Wichitas, but also the Pawnees and the Arikaras. By 1500, this linguistic family of tribes stretched from eastern Texas to South Dakota. The southernmost of these, of course, were the subject of this episode. They called eastern Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and southeastern Oklahoma home. The Wichitas and Kitsays stretched from northern Texas across Oklahoma and into Kansas. The Pawnees lived in northern Kansas and central Nebraska. The Iroquois territory was along the Missouri River in what is today South Dakota. They all shared the similarity of having corn as an important source of subsistence but even though they were linguistically related to the tribes to the north and west, the Caddo's faced east in cultural sense. And despite being a part of the linguistic Caddoan family, that did not mean that they could understand each other's languages, having very different dialects. They shared a distinctive cultural tradition within the Creeks, Chickasaws, Choctaws, Cherokees, and Natchez. Archaeologists and ethnologists and geologists and historiologists historiologists... Whatever, And all the ologies like to break down culture and region and time with names for the time periods and the regions. And the name for this vast, spanning cultural area is most commonly referred to today as the Mississippian culture. It is also referred to as the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex. The peoples of this vast region of the eastern United States, including the Caddo, shared a regional, stylistic similarity of artifacts, iconography, ceremonies, and mythology that coincided with their adoption of maize agricultural and chiefdom level complex social organization. Now before it became known as the SECC and now the Mississippian culture, my favorite, it was called the Southern Cult which grew out of the older term called Southern Death Cult. And yeah, the, the band The Cult from the 80s and 90s they started out as a band called Southern Death Cult. When the Mississippian civilization and its greatest city center, Cahokia, which is east of St. Louis in southern Illinois, were at their heights in the mid-11th century, European kingdoms and principalities were, as historian Tim Mithi wrote, emerging from the cultural and economic dark ages of the post-Roman world. The warming climate of the age allowed Inuit hunters in America's Arctic to travel east and Leif Erikson's Norse men and women to venture west. Greenland and Newfoundland had not been colonized. Viking lords' descendants still ruled in Dublin, York, Moscow, and Kiev and traded with the Islamic peoples in southwest Asia, with Christians in central Europe, and with Arabs in North Africa. The founders of Cahokia were descendants of the people that had been roaming the lower Mississippi Valley, searching for edible plants and small game, but by about 800 A.D., they had begun to turn to farming, enjoying harvests of a variety of vegetables, among them beans, squash, and their major staple, maize, or corn, which they had received through trade from Mexico through the peoples of Texas and the Southwest. Now, mound building in North America goes back beyond 3500 B.C. in what is today northeastern Louisiana, the oldest Western Hemisphere pyramids are not in Mexico or Peru, but instead can be found on both sides of the bayous and backwaters of the lower Mississippi River. Poverty Point in northeastern Louisiana is one of the earliest settled towns in the New World and had one of the largest earthen mounds ever built in North America. Cahokia took mound building to another level. Cahokia began as a large village around 700 B.C. It grew steadily, but around 1,050, it was leveled to the ground and replaced with something bigger and better. A clearly master-planned city that thrived for another hundred years when it entered a period of decline about 1,150. By 1,200, it was significantly depopulated, possibly by warfare and rebellion. I've seen other more recent articles that are thinking that there was some severe flooding and environmental factors that probably were more likely causes for this. During its peak, Cahokia had a population of 10,000 to 15,000 people, and another 20 to 30,000 people living in satellite communities. Villages of people doing the more intense food production along the Mississippi its tributaries would often be found centered around a small mound or two, platforms or burial mounds. Of these, the best known and biggest was a place now called Toltec Mounds along the Arkansas River near present-day Little Rock. Cahokia at its height was more than double the size of the original capital of Washington, D.C. when the government located there in 1800. Much of the ancient city has been destroyed by development in and around St. Louis since the 1800s. But it is still an amazing site to visit. And actually, before the pandemic started, I was able to visit with my family. It was in the early spring. It was very cold. But it was one of the most amazing sights I've ever visited. I actually walked up Monk's Mound in the cold with the wind blowing, and it was well worth it because you can see all of St. Louis. You can see for miles and miles and miles and miles all around. It was just—it's just—it was a—it's a beautiful place to visit. I encourage you if you ever get a chance to visit it. Definitely do. And the museum itself—that. They have on the grounds is one of the finest I've ever visited. Period. At its greatest, it is estimated to have covered over 3,000 acres, with a central area called the Grand Plaza covering 50 acres, or about 35 football fields. At the time it was the built, it was the biggest public space executed north of Mexico. Standing at the Grand Plaza's heart is a gigantic earthen-packed clay pyramid called Monks Mound which stood about 100 feet tall and covered nearly 15 acres. It had four terraces and big structures on its top during its final stage of development. In terms of mass, it was surpassed only by the Pyramid of the Sun at Toa Tihuacan and the Great Pyramid of Cholula in Mexico with a total volume in excess of 25 million cubic feet. Archeology span shows that it was constantly under construction and expansion. Many other buildings, including council houses, turnal houses, and elite homes were in the Great Plaza, all standing on top of lower flat-top mounds. There was also a sports court for a game called Chunky that was near the center of the plaza. In between these more public buildings were hundreds of almost identical single-family homes. To the west of Monk's Mounds stood a large circular arrangement of thick wooden poles, wood hinge like a Stonehenge in England. There were over 200 mounds at Cahokia. Unfortunately, many have been destroyed. Only about half or near their former proportions. And they were able to do a lot of this. The, the, they were, had a significant astronomical understandings. They, they knew a lot about the, the universe, and it tied into their religion. It's mind-blowing to consider the phenomenal amount of labor required to build the Cahokian mounds. But the mounds throughout the Mississippian sphere of influence, including those of the Caddo, were also amazing. The agricultural efforts of the people must have been remarkably special because they were able to support not only a huge workforce to construct the mounds, but also a ruling class and societal structure that allowed specialization in trade, religion, medicine, astronomy, and the arts. They had very well-developed political and religious systems. After 1150, the satellite villages began to empty as people migrated away. At the same time, other Mississippian centers gained in population. So whether this was because of really bad warfare or flooding, the culture didn't die. They moved and spread out and built up larger cities elsewhere. By 1250, Cahokia had decreased in population to under 5,000 for the whole region and by 1300, it was entirely abandoned. We don't know why, but as I said, many scholars now believe it's environmental, the environmental factors that played a huge role. Even though it went into decline, it had a long-term, far-reaching effect, being what archaeologists today call the beginning of Mississippian culture. Its influence stretched across eastern North America from Minnesota's lakes to Louisiana's swamps and from the eastern plains to the Atlantic. I would like to go into greater detail in another episode someday, but for this episode, we need to move on to see the emergence of one of the Texas peoples in the Mississippian culture. One of the peoples that fell into the realm of the Mississippians, a realm of trade and influence, were the bands of people now called Caddo Nation, who spread to the Trinity River in Texas. To the east there were the Natchez, and these were people that Caddo had the most direct cultural connection to in the Mississippian culture group. The empire of the Natchez, said to have run along the Gulf of Mexico from the frozen ocean to the land of fire, was made up of some clans of forest and mountain that joined together in the Father River, Mississippi River Valley. They originally lived in the Natchez Bluffs area in the lower Mississippi Valley, near the present-day city of Natchez, Mississippi in the United States. They had complex chiefdom characteristics, like the Kochians and the Caddo, that survived long in the period of the European colonization of America. The peoples that began to become the Caddoan Mississippian culture had lived in the area of Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma since at least 200 B.C. Early on, the Caddoan peoples lived in dispersed communities of grass and cane-covered structures. The size varied from isolated homesteads and farmsteads, to small hamlets, to a few larger villages, and then you would get the larger civic ceremonial centers. The ceremonial centers copied the Mississippian method of building earthen mounds that were used as temples, burial mounds, and a ceremonial fire mound to maintain an eternal flame. The Caddo's communities existed through the major and minor stream valleys of the Trans-Mississippian South, It appears that the largest and most important communities and civic ceremonial centers were always placed along the major streams, the Red, Arkansas, the Little, and Wichita rivers. They did not have fortifications of wooden palisades, unlike other Mississippi River Valley fortified towns of agriculturalists. Their development appears to have begun, like the Cahokians, around 800 A.D., and continued to develop along the manner of the wider culture. Like it was evidence in Cahokia, they developed intricate socio-political and religious systems. Atop the Caddo's earthen mounds were special structures for civic and or religious functions. The religious leaders would perform sacred rites there, and they would also store ritual paraphernalia there. The members of the society would congregate around the mounds at special times for special observances. The civic and ceremonial centers also served an important role for burial, especially the burial of the social and political and religious elite. They would be buried with ornately made grave goods, including ornaments made of marine shells and copper, long stem clay pipes, stone effigy pipes, large quartz crystals, a variety of minerals, arrows and quivers, and exceptionally large ceremonial knives. Many of these items were made from non-local materials that would have been procured through long-distance trade networks. The Caddo world became a hub for those bringing goods from as far away as New Mexico, northern Mexico, and the Mississippi Valley. Their main trading partners gave them access to certain types of vegetables, furs, and other luxury items not otherwise available to them in East Texas by bartering their baskets, tools, pottery, decorative art, and their weapons, especially their bows that were made from a really strong type of wood called Bodark. They developed and maintained long-distance east-west and north-south trade networks and held annual trade fairs in their towns. Items that passed to and through the Caddo to different areas involved other things like bison hides and salt. I already mentioned the, the copper, stone, marine shells and finished objects like pottery vessels and large ceremonial blades. The marine shell and copper objects, a couple of the most valuable trade items, came from areas more than 300 miles away from where they lived. In 1542, Moscoso wrote that the Caddo had cotton from the southwestern United States and turquoise that came from as far away as Albuquerque, New Mexico. Stone shells, copper, and ceremonial objects also came from as far away as Illinois. And as I said, they were especially well-known as expert bow makers, and their bows were popular items for trade. They used Bodark, or Osage Orange, which is a superior material, very hard for this type of weapon. By around 1500, the Caddo's were divided into at least 25 bands that they organized into three affiliated, kin shape base groups that we called confederacies. There were the Hasina, the Caddo Hadacho, and the Natchitoches. The total population, according to Chipman, may have numbered for all the Caddo's about 200,000. That's a huge number compared to what some of the other Texas subsistence level peoples would have been able to support. And it's all because they were able to grow so much food. They were the preeminent indigenous political entity in that part of the Spanish borderlands west of the Mississippi until about 1800, when immigrant Indians and Euro-Americans from east of the Mississippi began to move into Louisiana and in Spanish Texas. Lethal European diseases, of course, like smallpox, measles, and cholera, devastated them, and within two centuries, after initial contact with the Spanish In French, their numbers had fallen to about 15,000, a loss of more than 90%. Cattle settlements extended from the Trinity River due north past the Red River and as far east as the Mississippi River and were usually located, like I've mentioned, near water and on the best farming lands in the region. The Hassanay Confederacy lived in the Natchez and Angelina River Valleys of East Texas. They were the largest group And about 1500, they had about eight big communities. The Caddo Hadacho Confederacy consisted of four communities on the Red River and in the Great Bend area. They are where the term Caddo derives from, and by the 19th century is what generally applied to all the different bands. Pretty much, we know what we've done to all the other tribes. It's pretty much the same as what we did with the Coatecans, the Caracuas, the Humanos, the Tonquas, and the Atacapas. We find one name to group all of them under. You get the picture. And the Natchitoches Confederacy lived on the Red River in the vicinity of the French post of Natchitoches that would be established in 1714, and they were the smallest confederation of the Texas Caddo's. Women and men were both fond of adornments such as shells, bones, feathers, and colorful stones worn as necklaces, wristlets, and armlets. Catawomen were said to be especially skilled at dressing deerskin using deer and buffalo brains in a process that turned out a lustrous black leather that they made into moccasins, shirts, leggings, and breechcloths. Special attire for both men and women included adornments of shiny seeds and decorative painting. At some point in the distance past, they practiced a form of artificial cranial deformation in which their heads were elongated and made to taper off towards the top. This apparently has died off almost by the time the Europeans arrived. And there are only a few references that I've seen of people actually still performing that. They also, like every other tribe we've talked about, tattooed themselves. And I've never really talked about how they tattooed themselves. But what they do is they use needles and other sharp objects to prick the skin until the blood flowed. Then they would get powdered charcoal and rub it into the wounds and they would turn into, once the wounds healed, they would be striking tattoos. They tattooed lines on their faces from the top of the forehead down to the nose to the tip of the chin, and there was intricate plant and animal designs on their bodies. Women added tattoos at the corners of their eyes. They also painted their faces and bodies for special occasions, and men would paint their bodies with a vermilion color combined with bear grease when they prepared for war. There was no unique hairstyle, but commonly a man grew his hair about two inches long all over his head, except for a small top part, a patch on top, from which the hair would be allowed to grow to waist length. And they would adorn it with feathers and other adornments. Another style involved shaving all the hair or plucking it all out, except for a narrow strip extending from the head from the forehead to the neck. Women usually parted their hair in the middle and then gathered it into a knot at the neck with a rabbit skin dyed red. Men wore moxins, leggings, breechcloths, cloths, and shirts of deerskin or buffalo hide in winter and often stripped down just to their breechcloth in the summer. Women also wore bleach cloths under their clothing made of grass and straw and they had skirts uh, fashioned from a cloth woven from nettles or made from mulberry bark and they also wore deerskin skirts. Now, their societal structure, they were matrilineal, which means they traced descent through the maternal line rather than through the paternal. And they also structured themselves into clans named after animals like the eagle, panther, beaver, raccoon, bear, crow, wolf, and bison. And people rarely married someone in their own clan, if ever. The Caddo's had a hierarchy of positions within and between various bands to serve as religious and political leaders. The spiritual leader was called the Sinisi. This was also a political position, and it was inherited. They did not have absolute power, however. The loyalty of the other leaders, like the kadi and Kanahas, that we'll talk about in just a second, depended on leadership quality and good decision-making. The Sinisi maintained the sacred eternal flame. They mediated between the deities and the people, especially the... On behalf of the cadi and led special rites like the first fruits, harvest, and naming ceremonies. Below the senesi in the caddo religious order were lesser priests and medicine men who assisted in caring for the spiritual and physical needs of the people. They treated wounds and illness with medicinal herbs and various folk remedies. The cadi served as a village leader and it was also a hereditary position. The cadi made the important political decision for the village their lieutenants were called the Kanaha and they assisted and aided in sponsoring ceremonies leading war councils and leading the Kalumet or peace pot ceremony with visitors the Kanaha's made sure that the Kadi's policies were properly followed they directed the people in their tasks of tilling the soil building shelters for all concerned and seeing to the public good which involved issues of war the Caddo also had war leaders and warriors who, once they had attained a certain level of bravery in battle, earned the title Amai Zoya. The people of the band elected the war chief. When at war, the war leader had complete authority over the campaigns and expeditions. In historic times, the traditional enemies of the Caddo were the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Osage, Wichita, and Tonkawa Indians. Warfare usually involved little more than organized raids to capture or scalp one or a few individuals. They did not go to war to kill everybody. At times, there were large fights, and after a great victory where large numbers of the enemy were killed or captured, many trophy heads and scalps would be placed in the Sinise's compound. War, however, was not a primary part of their society and culture. When considered as a whole, the Mississippian culture shared some general beliefs In their religious views. They utilize a cosmological map encompassing real, knowable locations, some of which are in our world or in the supernatural reality of the other world. The cosmos is made of three levels. The above world or overworld is the home of the thunderers, the sun, the moon, the morning star, or redhorn, he who wears human heads for earrings. It represents order and stability. The middle world is the earth that humans live in. Yes, you can insert a little middle earth joke here. The middle world. That's where we live. The beneath world, or underworld, is a cold, dark place of chaos that serves as home to the underwater panther and corn mother, or old woman who never dies. Each of these three levels also had their own sub-levels. And the three worlds are connected by an axis mundi that connects from the underworld through the middle world and up to the overworld. This is usually depicted in art as a cedar tree or a strapped pole. Duality and opposition are extremely important concepts in the belief system. The beings of the upper and under realms are constantly fighting each other. Believers engage in ritual and ceremony to access and harness these powerful forces. The Sinesi and other priests were the mediators for the people with Kadi Ayo, or Ahahayo, yo being the supreme god, and they also mediated with the heavenly children of Kadi Ayo. The Sinesi was the head priest. He communicated with the gods and heavenly children to pass on their wishes of the Kadoan peoples. They used the important themes of fire, corn, pots, and drums in ceremonies for forecasting each spring planting first fruits, and after harvest. Every part of life is linked through ritual to the supernatural powers, and they knew that whether the deities helped or hurt them was a result of the actions that the people performed. The gods at times needed appeasement, and they always deserved homage in good times. The most important ceremonies focusing on hunting, warfare, and above all else, the fruits of cultivation, with corn being the most important centers for major ceremonies. On top of a large mound, the Senisi conducted religious ceremonies in a tall grass hut. The Kado also performed gross dances to help let the living connect with the dead. The Kadi oversaw construction of the public buildings, the fire temple, and the compounds of the Senisi and the Cadi that were kept distinct from the community's households. It seems that the Caddo stopped constructing earthen mounds sometime after 1700, though. When a leader died, the Caddo had several days of ceremony and mourning as the deceased was laid to rest in a burial mound. Some excavations of the mound show that up to eight people would occasionally have been buried together. Archaeologists think that the extra people buried with the leader may have been family or servants sacrificed to honor the deceased leader or to provide companionship in the spirit world. Precious items, like we've already mentioned, such as fine jewelry and tools, would be placed in the grave, and the bodies would be covered with wooden poles, grass, and a layer of dirt that would provide a new surface for the next burial. Caddo women had rights and recognitions not generally found in European societies of the same time period. As we said, the Caddo society was a matrilineal one. Authority was handed down, both in families and in the larger clan, through the mother's line. This meant that women had a very important place in kinship networks, Women shaped Caddo social conduct, privileges, and duties within the kinship networks and could also influence individuals' economic, political, and social standing as they related to the broader group. Caddo women had a voice in matters of internal tribe and intertribal trade and relations. This even meant in issues involving war and peace. If women were president in a visiting Indian delegation, then that symbolized peace. If women were absent from a visit, then it conveyed hostility. A few women are even said to have become chiefs, but this was not understood to be necessarily the norm. As far as marriage went, Spanish-Franciscan priests were scandalized by Caddo marriage customs, in which a couple could divorce and seek a new partner on the slightest pretext. Historian Donald Chipman writes, Indeed, marital relations between Caddo men and women could perhaps be best described as serial monogamy. Nevertheless, Caddo's, especially when compared with Other Texas Indians by Europeans brought forth impressions of great power, beauty, and wealth. Now the housing for the Caddo's. They built well-constructed houses made of grass and plant fibers that resembled huge beehives or stacks of hay. The size of the dwellings reflected one's rank in society, but even the average house was still impressive, many being 40 or 50 feet in height and 60 feet wide. They slept on canopy beds positioned a few feet above the dirt floors, along the interior walls and there was a perpetual flame burning at the center of each house if that fire ever went out they would have to get fire relit from the eternal flame of the temple fire that was never allowed to die during prehistoric times Caddoan people's agriculture economy was based on maize, beans and squash as well as maygrass, amaranth, chino pods and sunflowers they grew two varieties of corn One was an earlier little corn planted in April and harvested in July. The other was a flower corn planted in June and harvested in September at the great harvest of the great corn. They also gathered wild plants that were plentiful between May and November. As I said, their their dome-shaped homes they built from grass and cane close to sources of fresh water like rivers and streams, and up to four families might share a house. They planted their fields surrounding their settlements, giving them easy access to their main food supply. And women had a significant role in farming. They oversaw and did most of the work. Men aided with the plowing, and the women oversaw planting, care of the plants, rotating the crops as needed, fertilizing the soil with the wild animal droppings, and then storing the excess harvest for use during lean times. They stored enough seed corn each year for two more years planting caddos hunted game animals for clothing, tools, equipment, and, of course, for food. Some of the most important game were deer. Rabbits, raccoon, fish, turkey, squirrel, and turtles. Bison and bear also provided meat and furs. Bears were hunted primarily in the winter months because mainly that's when they were their fattest. And they would take the fat and render it, and they could store it in pots for long periods. And the caddos also used dogs to hunt buffalo and they also used them to rout out bears. The game animals, like the deer and turkey, apparently were usually hunted in the fall months, and after the introduction of the horse, many of the caddos launched communal bison hunts during the winter months on the prairies to the west. The horses making it that much more efficient for them to hunt, but they also had already been hunting bison with dogs for a considerable amount of time. One of the Caddo's important sites in Texas that you can visit are the Caddo Mounds near Weeping Mary, Texas. The site is a Caddoan village and ceremonial center with two earthwork platforms and one burial mound. It is the most southwestern of all the great Mississippian mound building cultures. Archaeologists believe the site was founded approximately 800 AD, but most of the major building occurred from 1100 to 1300. The village was located along an ancient trail that had been used for generations for trade, a trail that the Spanish would use and named El Camino Real de los Tejas. It would be used by the Spanish and others to connect Natchitoches, Louisiana, Nacogdoches, Texas, Guerrero, Mexico, and down into Mexico City. Another important Cadogan site is The Spiro Mounds in southeastern Oklahoma said to be some of the most elaborate mounds outside from Cahokia, Bluffton and Battle Mound in Arkansas, and Belcher and Gehogan Mounds in Louisiana. The Caddo Mounds village in Texas was abandoned sometime in the 13th century. Outlying satellite communities were becoming more self-sufficient, and the elite ruling class declined in its influence. As time advanced, the Caddo culture that remained retained many of the cultural values and practices, but no longer had a severe hierarchical structure with its exotic material wealth. By the time the Europeans arrived in Texas, the Caddo lived in small villages and hamlets and had long since stopped building mounds. Devastating changes came for the Caddo's with the arrival of Anglo-American settlers, first into Louisiana and Arkansas about early 1800s and into Texas after it was opened for settlement by non-Texans. Disease and warfare led to exponential decline in population. Pressured and in danger, the Louisiana caddos removed themselves from their homelands. according to the Treaty of 1835, to Texas. They lived briefly on a Brazos reservation with other tribes before their group of less than a thousand, that's all that remained, was led to Southwestern Indian Territory in 1859 by federal agent Robert S. Neighbors over their own Trail of Tears. And they settled on a district, the least district, on a reservation. Tribal elders commented that of all their foreign visitors and interlopers, they definitely preferred the Frenchmen the most. Now, the Caddo Nation is still here. They... The Caddo Nation of Oklahoma is a federally recognized tribe with its capital in Binger, Oklahoma. Descendants of the historic tribes, with the documentation of at least one-sixteenth ancestry, are eligible to enroll as members of the Caddo Nation. And today, the Caddo Nation of Oklahoma has a population of about 6,000. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail. I am just wanted to sum that last little final bit up. In We're going to be revisiting every one of these peoples that were taken taking time to introduce ourselves to here, to introduce where they lived, how they lived, what their culture was, how they were related in terms to each other, and with other tribes and peoples around around Texas and outside of Texas. In the past, I have gone into greater detail showing interactions with the Spanish and the, 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 the missions and whatnot, but I'm going to leave it at that for this as an introduction to who the Caddo were the most significant, advanced people that we have seen so far in in Texas and have, were tied to a really amazing, really beautiful culture that extended over a vast section of North America before European contact. I want to thank everybody for listening, and I want to thank my Patreon supporters, Jay, Ron, and Kay. Aaron, thank you very much. Uh, it means a lot to me that you're there. And uh, in the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at the Leapound Apaches. And Season 1, about um, the nations that existed here before European contact, it's about over. We're going to be taking a couple of little small episodes to look at a couple of things after we do the Apaches. And then we're going to move on into the arrival of the Spanish and what their actions were like and more focus on them. But we're still going to always keep a focus on the First Peoples. Thanks for listening to Texas History Lessons. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email the show at Lessons at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Visit texashistorylessons.com.